when I was first, I was just really learning about Hanukkah myself. Hanukkah myself, I didn't really know very much about it at all. And uh, so I was in kind of objective study mode at first. But um, the second time around, as I was thinking about tonight, I realized how dark a time it was in Israel, you know, and and what an unusual response, the birth of the festival of light, right, out of that darkness. So I'm going to do my best to share some of this with you. How many of you have, a you think, a working knowledge of where Hanukkah came from? Okay. Uh, one of the interesting things I learned that I'm sure some of you know is that uh, there's nothing in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament that explains Hanukkah. Uh, it comes out of the book of First and Second Maccabees, and it comes out of the Second Temple period, and uh, it involves the Maccabees, but it also involves a bunch of other stuff. So I'm going to cover some stuff. I found some material, and and uh, you'll have to excuse these are kind of long PowerPoint slides, but I'm going to power through them a little bit. So the story of Hanukkah, and I don't know why, what, what is the language element about Chanukah, Hanukkah, is it, it's what? You're right, and I, I did read some stuff from some people, uh, uh, scholars and stuff that said that permissible spellings cover the whole range. So, okay, cool. All right, so to get back into history, about 200 years BCE, in the land of Israel, uh, the land of Israel was part of the Seleucid Empire. It was a Syrian Greek Empire dominated by the Syrian rulers, and they were called the Seleucians, and you'll see why in just a second. So the story that led up to Hanukkah starts with Antichius III. Now, when I first saw that, I assumed that was Antichius because it didn't have the third, but uh, the, uh, Antichius IV was one of his sons, and he comes into play later in the midst of the story. So Antichius III was the king of Syria from and he reigned from 222 to 186 BCE. And he had waged war with Ptolemy, the king of Egypt, and he had won that war. And as a result of winning that war, Israel, the land in the middle, so you can imagine Syria up north, Israel down south, Israel was annexed into the Assyrian Empire. But the Assyrians and the Egyptians weren't the only power players. Rome was lurking in the background and had great influence all around the area. Not as great as it would be, but great enough that they could call the shots on a lot of stuff. So anyway, uh, he won that and, and annexed Israel. And then early, he was a, a fairly favorably disposed monarch, and he treated the Jews fairly well, and he was very tolerant of their religion and everything. Uh, but later, Rome was starting to put the screws on him and compelled him to collect taxes, a lot of them. And the burden fell upon the various peoples that are his empire. A lot of Israel's ancient enemies that were smaller states, they were also under the Syrian empire. Uh, the people you'd read about, about the Hivites and the Jebusites and some of those kind of people, they were also under this. And so he was, as his reign went further on, he was under pressure to collect more and more money, more and more taxes. He died, and his son Seleucius IV took over, and he further oppressed the Jews. Now, Judaism, at the same time as being covered by this, these nations, 
and the sort of precursor to being under Rome. It was also threatened from within, and it was an influence called the Hellenization of the Jews. So when the Syrian income was, or, or the Syrian Empire was there, there were a number of Jews that um, political leaders and various other people, priests and so on, as well as just regular people, that were okay with the Syrian influence in their in their realm. And uh, it wasn't just a little bit, uh, you know, like when you read the stories or you watch movies and stuff like that about the Roman uh, occupation of Israel, Judaism was still pretty much let be Judaism. But this battle with the Hellenistic Jews was really over, do we keep the law? Do we keep worship the way it is? And so it, it got it got pretty tight. Now, there was a, a faction always of loyal, faithful Jews, faithful to Yahweh, and their high priest, uh, Yochanan, foresaw the danger of Judaism being penetrated by this Syrian Greek influence, and he was against it totally. He didn't want any part of that to be given over to them. He didn't want their customs in the land, and as a result, he took a pretty strong stand against it, and as another result, the Hellenist Jews really hated him because they saw him standing in the way of their prosperity and their interaction in the culture around them. So this is an underlying thing. And, and when I was studying about the story of, of uh, Hanukkah, and, you know, Hanukkah is, is a fun holiday. It, it's a, a gift-giving holiday. It's a candy holiday. It's a, a junk food holiday in a way, you know, because we'll, we'll see in a second. You don't hear a lot about it. And uh, the stuff that I read, the rabbinic writings and, and teachers and stuff, one of the reasons is because it's not popular to um, publicize this internal schism in Israel at that time, that there were Jews that were promoting uh, kind of a compromised lifestyle and a compromised worship. So uh, even the, the, the sort of phrases that come with Hanukkah, uh, you know, the one defeated the many, they, they like to... They just don't like emphasizing the fact that it was Jew against Jew in a lot of the, the political and social issues. So I can understand it. So anyway, he was uh, uh, he was opposed to any of these attempts. But then one of the Hellenistic Jews told the governor of the king that there, uh, the, and Seleucius was the king at the time, that there was a bunch of gold in the tabernacle. And it came from the half shekel offerings. And we'll see that in a second here, I think. Um, so the wealth in that treasury, if you remember, and I think, I, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think that that uh, debate that went on where they were asking Jesus, don't you pay the temple uh, offering, temple tax, and then the fish and everything, that was a part of, if not the half-shekel type offering. And that's why there was one for each Jewish adult. So Peter had one and Jesus had one. But anyway, that was in there. And then also there was money that was collected, and I don't understand all the ramifications. You guys might know something to share. Uh, for the orphans fund and and the temple collected money for orphans and saved it for them to give to them so that they would have money to start their life when it was when they were older so there was a bunch of gold in there and Seleucius needed that money in order to pay the Romans so he sent this particular minister and this is the first to me kind of really interesting story out of this dark time uh, this this uh, Syrian uh, minister of his Helido, Heliodros to take the money from the treasury. Now, Yitrohan begged him not to go in, not to go in there and, and do it, to try to ransack that temple. But he didn't listen to him, and he went ahead and entered the gates. 
And then the story is that suddenly this man, this Syrian pagan man, just became super frightened, pale, and he fainted and fell to the ground. So he never made it in to get the gold out. And when he woke up, they couldn't make him go back in. He abandoned his role. So I thought it was pretty interesting. It's the first time that God came up directly against this thing, just his presence. And it was it reminded me of all the stories of when, uh, remember when the uh, uh, Philistines took the ark into Dagon's temple, and then Dagon ended up being broken and all this kind of stuff. So God was in here in the beginning. All right. Seleucius ends up dying, or he was killed actually by his brother, uh, or killed in a, in a battle or something. And his brother, Antichius IV, and that's the Antichius that I uh, had heard about in my Bible studies in my past, he began to reign over Syria in 174 BCE. He was uh, a rash tyrant, contemptuous of religion and culture of others. So these two guys' father, Antichius III, was a pretty peaceable guy in, in, as far as being a king of a you know, monarch, and he, he respected other cultures, but his son Seleucius did not, and Antichius was even worse. Uh, he took on himself the title of Epiphanes, which means uh, the God's beloved one, but a, a contemporary historian of his time, this guy named Plobius, gave him the epithet Epimanes, which means the madman. So his self-image and his public image were different. <laughs> He thought of himself as being favored and divine. And in, in fact, the people around him realized he was a harsh and cruel king. So in desiring to unify his kingdom, the way he chose to do it was to stamp out any kind of religious independence or religious differences and any kind of cultural differences. And this was the thing that set it up so that the people, that, that the Hellenized Jews, uh, were drawn more and more into a complete abandonment of their culture and a complete abandonment of their worship and uh, and then, of course, they got favor, you know, because of that from the, the, the king and the various uh, soldiers and ministers and so on. So he tried to root out the individualism of the Jews by suppressing all Jewish laws. He removed the high priest, Yochanan, from the temple in Jerusalem, and he placed uh, instead Yochanan's brother, Joshua, who was a Hellenist, and he preferred... To be talked or to be called by the name Jason. And that was his Greek name. He used his high office to spread more and more of the Greek customs among the priesthood. So Yukonan was, was still around at that time, but uh, Joshua, also known as Jason, was now made the priest. He was eventually replaced by another uh, priest named Menelaus, who promised King Antichius IV that he would bring more money than Jason had. And so this whole issue went on, obviously, for a long time about trying to get the, the gold out of the Jewish temple and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, when Yochanan, the former high priest, remember who had begged the guy not to go in there, when he protested against the spread of the Hellenist influence in the temple, the high priest Menelaus hired murderers to kill him. So you could tell this was turning into an intense battle at the level of the priests and everything. Antichius IV was engaged in a war at the same time uh, against Egypt, but messengers from Rome arrived and just told them straight up, you have to stop the war. And I don't understand the reasoning why, but he was enraged by them uh, meddling in his affairs. And a rumor began to circulate in Jerusalem that he had befallen a terrible accident in the war down in Egypt. And so people thinking he was dead, this is the, the opportunity, the moment that the faithful Jews to Yahweh 
started to mass together and they rose up against these various ministers and soldiers and all that kind of stuff. And um, um, they rebelled against Menelaus. And Menelaus and the other uh, of his ilk fled Jerusalem at the time. So this was the beginning of a rebellion. Now, Antichius returned. Obviously, he wasn't dead. He wasn't hurt. He returned from Egypt, enraged, and just with a chip on his shoulder about the Roman interference. And when he heard about this rebellion in Jerusalem, he ordered his army to fall upon the Jews. And at the first incursion of that army, thousands of Jews were martyred. Thousands of them were killed. And uh, then he put out all kinds of harsh decrees against their practices. Jewish worship was forbidden, and all of these things were on pain of death. So Jewish worship was forbidden. Torah skulls were confiscated and burned. Sabbath rest, circumcision, and dietary laws were also punished. If you were caught doing them, you were put to death. So it's a very serious crackdown. Uh, one story that stood out in a lot of the writings is that a respected elder of that generation, a 90-year-old uh, Rabbi Eliezer, was ordered by troops to eat pork so that others would do the same. And so what was happening is these laws were being enforced by small bands of Syrian troops and uh, their commanders or ministers over them. So anyway, they, they told this uh, 90-year-old Rabbi Eliezer to, to eat pork so others would do the same. And when he refused, they offered for him to simply put the meat to his lips and appear to eat. I thought that was an interesting little fact. So there wasn't a commitment to actually converting the hearts of anybody. There was just corrupting their passion and their commitment. So when he refused to even do that, he was put to death and the persecution continued. And then uh, I'm a little bit familiar, but not, not greatly familiar. But the terrain of Egypt didn't leave people much of a place to, to hide except around the Judean area. And there were hills and mountains and there were caves in Judea and stuff like that. So for the most part, people were being chased out of their communities and out of their villages and so on. And the faithful Jews fled to the relative safety of Judea, yet many still died. So one day the henchmen uh, of uh, Antichius arrived in the village of Modain, where Matiyahu, there we go, Matiyahu, the old priest, lived. The Syrian officer built an altar in the marketplace demanding that Matiyahu offer sacrifice to the Greek gods, and then he made this response. I, my sons and brothers, are determined to remain loyal to the covenant which our God has made with our ancestors. So, when he refused, a Hellenistic Jew in the community offered to go to the altar and make a sacrifice. And Matayahu grabbed his sword and killed that Jew. And that was really the first stroke of the Maccabean revolt. Uh, so he killed that, and then his sons uh, rallied and some of the others around there, and they start slaying, and apparently it was a relatively small group of Syrians that were there forcing this issue, and they were killed and chased away, and then they destroyed the altar. Well, knowing that there was going to be an almost immediate retribution to this, Matthias and the faithful Jews fled to the caves of Judea, and there they gathered weapons, formed legions, and began to train for battle. And, uh, and they began raiding villages, killing Syrians, and destroying the various altars that they had built. So before his death, uh, Meta Yehu, Yahu, <laughs> called his sons together and urged them to continue to fight in defense of God's Torah. 
In waging warfare, he said their leader should be Judah the Strong, which was one of his sons. Judah was called Maccabee, and that's a word and a title designed to declare each time it's spoken, who is like you, O God. So the, the whole declaration, the shout, the Maccabees, is a declaration of who is like you, God. So that was kind of the declarative, mystical part of what was going on here. Now, Antichius sent General Apollonus to wipe out the Jews, Judah, Maccabee, and his followers, the Maccabees, Though greater in number and equipment, the Syrians were defeated by him. And then a second group, now I don't know the exact size of this, and I don't know the numbers, I wasn't able to find the numbers, but both of the Syrian expeditions were of greater number and greater, better equipped, but they were both defeated. So, not being a complete idiot and king and destruction, uh, Antichius IV realized that only by sending a really powerful army could he hope to defeat Judah and the Maccabees. So he sent more than 40,000 men at one time the next time. When Judah and his brothers heard this, this was their exclamation. Let us fight unto death in defense of our soul and our temple. And the people assembled in Mitzpah, which is where Samuel, uh, prophet of old, had offered prayer to God. They prayed, and they always prayed before battles, always declared the Lord, always spoke his name. After a series of hard-fought battles against the Syrian forces, the war for Israel was actually won. And the Syrians were fundamentally, for all practical purposes, driven from the land. Now, I thought that was pretty amazing. That takes us to the point of this and the beginning of this. So, you want to light it? Go again. All right, so victory was in hand. And uh, without really delaying or anything, uh, Judah Maccabee and the Maccabees, they decided, let's go liberate Jerusalem. So they headed to Jerusalem to liberate Jerusalem and to uh, cleanse out the temple. So that's what they did. They entered the temple. They cleared it of all the idols that had been placed there by the Syrians. Judah and his followers built a new altar, which he dedicated on the 25th of the month of Kislev in the year 139 BC. Now, the month of Kislev, that's latter in the year, correct? Yeah. And so there's an interesting little affirmation of the season of this holiday and that event in John chapter 10 that we'll look at in just a little bit. Uh, since the golden menorah, the original golden menorah that was in the temple had been stolen and taken for, you know, the, the paying of taxes to the Romans by the Syrians, the Maccabeans made it one of a cheaper metal. And they prepared to light it, but as they were searching, they only found one small cruise of sacred olive oil, enough to only burn for a single day. And it was still technically sanctified, sealed, and pure, and it was bearing the unbroken seal of the former faithful high priest, Yochanan. So that's kind of an interesting deal. Uh, They went ahead and lit it, but by the miracle of God, that one container of oil that was only enough under normal circumstances to burn for a single day, burned for eight days. And the miracle proved and reinforced the hearts of Israel beyond even the victory that God had taken his people under his protection. And so in memory of this, the Jewish sages appointed a holiday as a remembrance, a festival of light, to remember that day. And so that's one of the differences between Hanukkah and some of the other feasts. The other feasts were, were pulled from other historical events some of them, but they were all commanded by God to go forth. Hanukkah was something that was established by the, I guess, the priesthood and the sages and the leaders of Israel. So uh, if you talk to somebody um, that's in the know about it, uh, there are major holidays 
and Hanukkah is not a major holiday. What is it called? Minor holiday or just a festival or something? So anyway, and these guys will share some more of that anyway. Uh, so that that's where this came from. Is uh, this represents the light that the miracle of that light that burned seven days beyond what it was physically capable of burning. Now, I cut off the history part here, but I'm going to catch you up on a little bit because I thought, wow, this is going to be a long PowerPoint. The victory over the Syrians was huge, obviously. The miracle sealed that victory and set this up as a big deal. But then the, the Jews that had been hiding in, in Judea and had fled from their farms, they were longing to go back to their homes, into their farms, and to live a peaceful life. Because fundamentally, they didn't want to start the war in the first place, you know. But uh, Judas Maccabee realized, we can't do this. In the absence of the Syrians being driven away, all those little other enemies that were under the thumb of the Syrians rose up and were prepared to attack Jerusalem themselves. So that would have been like those ancient enemies of the Philistines and the Hivites and Jebusites and all that kind of stuff. Plus, the Hellenistic Jews had congregated in a lot of communities because they were not the ones that were uh, uh, subject to the terror of the Syrian armies. And so they had established themselves, and Judas Maccabees knew that there was a big threat to faithful worship of Yahweh through that. So he, he rallied because of his stature and because of the success of that army. He rallied the guys to stay. And they began to uh, reinforce particularly the walls and the areas. They built a moat uh, around Jerusalem. And they fortified against the cities of the Hellenized Jews. And they went out and they drove the Jebusites and the uh, sons of the Philistines and all that stuff, drove them out of the land. And so it, it, he didn't let the war stop, the rebellion stop, the purging, the cleansing stop, until all of the ancestral lands of the Jews was back under the control of faithful Yahweh and, and worshipers. So um, anyhow, that took some time. And that that's the part of Hanukkah that doesn't get discussed much because it's a... It's a kind of a black mark on the heart, really, of the people in, in their worship. But um, some of those divisions of the Hellenists still continued. If you think about it, uh, you remember in Acts, when the church was beginning to grow and flourish, one of the first sort of church-wide political issues that came up was the Hellenized Jews uh, were complaining that the widows from their camp weren't receiving enough food. And so the one thing that struck me so much was the, the continuation of this dark period and this amazing victory and all this, the continuation of that period wasn't just the victory, but it continued to open the door for understanding what Jesus was in fact capable of bringing. So the church began to heal those wounds. And then when you think about it, uh, I, I mean, he was a Roman, he wasn't a Syrian, but when you think about it, um, even like Cornelius coming to know the Spirit of God was a fulfillment of a healing of all of this stuff that Israel had suffered through all this time. Uh, all right. So the one direct reference that I found is in John 10, 
Jesus is at the Feast of the Dedication. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. I thought that was fascinating. And so we've had some interesting talks about, um, you know, uh, when was Jesus born? What was the feast associated with it? And uh, there's no indication of it being the dead of winter when Jesus was born because there was a lot of outdoor stuff going on, activities. And um, these guys have, have steered me to look and consider that if you follow out the prophetic timelines and the feast timelines, there's a good chance that Jesus was born during Sukkot, which was earlier in the year. Uh, still like, what, late summer, early fall? Fall, early fall. And um, the other interesting fact that we learned was that Hanukkah itself was patterned after Sukkot because during this time where the Jews were congregated just in Judea and they were fighting back against the Syrians and everybody, that they weren't able to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Sukkot. And so that's one of the reasons that Hanukkah inherited the eight-day similarity to the Feast of Tabernacles. So anyway, but Jesus, I, I, this is pretty interesting to me. And I'm going to see if I can do this. It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication, which is what this is called, and that was because it was the dedication, the rededication of the temple after they had cleansed it out, and that's where the miracle of the oil was, took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered, I show you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered and said, For a good work we would not stone you, but you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, the thing I thought was interesting about that is, first of all, I don't want you to get uh, overly concerned about, you're not my sheep. Many of them became his sheep. All of them are destined to be his sheep. The Father thought of all of them as those that would be coming his sheep. But isn't it amazing that a fe this festival of light was the occasion where Jesus was first sort of challenged this way as aggressively as it was, even to the point of them wanting to stone him, and where he made that declaration, are you going to tell us, are you the Christ? Now, the interesting part about that to me, one of them, is that there were a lot of Jews that were thinking messianically about Judas Maccabee because of all he did to save. And that, so the concept of a savior, the concept of a Messiah, was really sort of fueled in the minds of the Jews by the great victory that Judas Maccabees and the, the, the heroic faithful guy he was. And I think that's why there was some confusion even among Jesus' disciples, even after the resurrection, when, when they told him, so now are you going to bring the kingdom back? Because this was only a 150 years in their past. These stories were real. They were vivid. 
And they were still expecting that sort of deliverance. But Jesus was bringing a much broader and a much bigger one. But I, I just thought that was fascinating. And I thought, wow, what a bummer that something that was birthed in such a great victory and such an uh, amazing little miracle of God, that it actually that it actually became the occasion for the, the Pharisees to stand up against Jesus. So that was that's the, the one interaction that Jesus had with it. And then I started thinking, okay, so this was a commissioned holiday, a commissioned festival. And the centerpiece of this commissioned festival, even though it's fun to eat the chicken and donuts and all that good stuff, and exchange presents and play with the dreidel and stuff. This is the focus of this, the light. And from the very beginning, the fundamental understanding of Jesus was that his life is the light of men. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. There was a true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then in John 8, Jesus spoke and said, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness. So, one of the unfortunate comparisons, uh, or the unfortunate sort of assumptions culturally, is that Hanukkah is like the Jewish form of Christmas. And I'm not even saying that there aren't some bridges of devotion in the purest sense that could be linked to them, but Hanukkah's not that. Hanukkah is about light. And Jesus is light. And that's why, for me, now, the uh, growing and a little bit of understanding about the significance of Hanukkah is, is a light festival. It's about Jesus. It's wonderful. And so I'm going to turn the rest of it over to you guys. I think that's the last. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That division that was so characterized, not just between the ruthless Gentile uh, kings that, that came to oppress Israel and the nation being divvied up between Egypt and Syria and Rome and all this kind of stuff, but just the very divisions themselves is what Jesus came to heal. And, and one of the things, so like I was thinking of that characterization that, that this emerged out of a really dark time, a really dark time in Israel. And we are facing somewhat of a dark time in our lives, in our country. Uh, it's been a, a challenge for me because I know some folks that have gotten sick. There's people that, whose lives are kind of hanging in the balance. And um, there are some crazy political and philosophic alignments going on now. And every now and then I'll read something where somebody is agreeing to surrender their independence or their freedom or their rights or something. And I'm just going, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And it made me think about Mattatiah, not that I'm going to go cut anybody down with a sword, but this outside influence comes in, sets up an altar, says we want you to worship, sacrifice a pig or something. He says, no way, I'm going to stick with God. And then another of his brothers, right out of the crowd, yeah, yeah, stepped up and said, we'll do it. You know, family against family, friend against friend. And 
the honest truth is I haven't done as good a job as I wish I could at resisting the frustration of that and the disappointment of that. When I read about things and when I, you know, simple things, I see people that, uh, like here's an example just briefly. I watched an interview with a female doctor from that was uh, denied her privileges at, at uh, Methodist Hospital in Houston because she was treating her patients with ivermectin. And the hospital protocol didn't allow it, so they cut off her privileges. Now, the lady had, up to that point, treated 2,000 COVID victims and not had a single one have to be hospitalized. And she was called in to a person who was in uh, an urgent situation by the family, and that's when they said no, and they cut her off. And so I'm sitting there thinking, it, it just... It was hard to get my mind around it. It seemed as weird a contrast as that one story about the altar and, and Medoin. And I thought, how can we do this? How can you think that way? How can we do it? And what this, for the last week or so, has done is this celebration has helped me lift my vision above the weird circumstances and realize, okay, we're not the first to face something like this. I knew that anyway. But I mean, just really. And to give me permission to keep the joy in my heart and to keep the trust flowing in my heart. Brother Al up there is um, pending the loss of a long job. I mean, how many years have you served, brother? 34 years. 34 years. And uh, we don't know the final outcome of it, but theoretically, uh, starting next year, that job's going to be terminated because of his uh, choice to not take the vaccine. This is insane to me. It's crazy to me. It's crazy to me when uh, ambulance drivers and first responders and, and healthcare workers in the midst of the health crisis are being fired because they won't take a vaccine that they didn't have available to them for a year and a half while they were caring for everybody. It, it makes no sense. But you know what? The logic of the world, the influence of the enemy, it doesn't make sense. And I know there's things I think and do that don't make sense, but there is a greater reality. And so um, I guess Hanukkah interested me a little because I just thought of it as a uh, kind of an unusual Jewish cultural quirky thing. And I, I didn't like disregard it because I, I realized that they had a reason. You know, I just didn't know what they were. But now it has so much more capacity for meaning. So I want us to, to be in a position to take communion tonight, realizing that, that Jesus is in this light. And then we've got chicken and we've got other good stuff and uh, the various other Hanukkah things. So Holly's going to come up and share the rest of this stuff. So people ask us all the time, so thanks for letting us do this. Um, we were talking about, even on the car on the way up here, like this is a big deal because churches don't allow this. Churches don't allow 
Judy, the um, holidays that are considered Jewish to be mixed in to holidays um, or to the, to the Christian faith, which is exactly what was happening during these days. I mean, t- t- literally, it was what was happening is that the, that the Jewish faith was not being held with esteem. And so the fact that we are holding their traditions and those traditions with esteem, I think is a really big deal to God. And so thank you for doing this because I think it's a really huge deal. Um, when we talk about the one new man of, of, of Jew and Gentile coming together and being apart and coming together, I think we're a part of that by just having a menorah lit tonight in, in, in our midst and being apart because I think this is what it was, I mean, this is what was been all along. This was, this was the goal. This was the deal is that we were supposed to follow in with them and beside them and among them and become because they announced to us, guess what? He's in you. And so, so they were the ones that the Jewish people are the ones that, that, that found their Messiah was their Messiah, who was also our Messiah. And they, they then said, Oh, He's in you also. And so people ask us all the time. Um, so Jennifer and I um, and Ezekiel, we all celebrate um, these holidays. And people ask us all the time why. And so the reason why is because every time we do, we feel like we're honoring God. But also every time we do, he is so good to, to show us and to teach us something new. So when Larry came on Tuesday, I was like, I've never heard half of this stuff. Like, like 90% never heard of it because there's so much history there. And it's so rich that every time we do it, and, and most Jewish holidays are meant to be celebrated in the home and amongst people. And the way that we teach here, I know when Yana and Darla were here, but even just in general, the way that Larry chooses to teach where we can go to a microphone and talk and discuss and hash it out, that is also um, Hebraic and, and not what is traditionally um, the Christian model. And so I just think that there's something something to that. So every time we celebrate a holiday, and we've been celebrating for 24-ish years, I think, 23 years, we've been trying to incorporate. We did a little bit more. We um, we started real, real, real basic, not having any idea what to do. And then we've gained this much. And I feel like there's this much to gain. So what Larry offered tonight and Tuesday and, and during this teaching time is is just the, that richer next level. And so I love that. There's like that next level every time we celebrate. So some of the things that I'll just mention real quick, and then we'll light the candles. Um, whenever he was talking about when this was done and how this, like when this came into Bath, it was actually, I think, because he was talking about the books that were, you know, the Maccabees and those books, but it was actually literally between Malachi and Matthew. So it was right there in those days where we don't, we don't have anything in, in our, in our Bible that's, that's written, um, that, that we have in our Bible. Bible that's written about it because it was in those days between Malachi and Matthew. And so, so that kind of gives you some, some time period. Um, I think that helped me to know that. Um, and then my, just thinking about like whenever we're talking, we're talking about how this is affecting us today and, and with what we're seeing in our own country, I think we do see some similarities, but I also just like, if you just close your eyes and are, are open and look at that cross and picture soldiers walking in right now, rushing through our doors, taking down that cross, putting up an idol to an unknown God. In this case, it was Zeus. Maybe it's Buddha, whatever, whoever that is. So so whatever we would be an abomination, whatever you would think, oh, how could we do that? If they ripped that down, put that up. I told Jen, she thought I was crazy, but I was like, so is it too much if I say like, eat this flesh? Because we don't have food. Christians don't consider any food an abomination. And so it's hard to compare. But if they said, by the way, we're going to sacrifice a human here and eat this flesh, we would be like, like, there's no way. It was that gross to them. It was that disgusting to because they were, but they've been told not to. So if, if they ripped that down, put up an idol, said, bow now and eat this flesh, drink this blood, whatever it was, speared blood all over the place, 
that's the equivalent of what happened. And so, so that, that's what happened. And whenever Matiahu, um, killed the man, um, the, the, the guy who came up to say, yes, I'll do it. I'll, I'll make that sacrifice. I'll do that thing. You know, they were, they were sacrificing these pigs and it was, um, it was horrible. Oh, sorry. Sorry, thanks. And um, they were sacrificing these pigs and it was awful, um, to, to the Jewish people and it was disgusting. But whenever he came up from the crowd to do that and he stepped up front to say, I'll do it, Matiahu, the story is that he killed him out of mercy for that man because he said, I cannot allow you, my brother, my best friend, my, my close one, I cannot allow you to do this before you die. I cannot allow you. It's better to have death than to defile God by defying, defying our commandments. And so, that's how serious it was. It was out of a it was a mercy killing. Um, it was a way to say this is more important. It's more important that you honor God than that you die. So that's how serious they took it. Um, and then. Just looking up at the oil. So in our house, what we do is we just tell the story differently depending on who's at our house every year. And in the oil, so one of the things we celebrate is miracles. So whenever we talk about the eight days, that it burned eight days. And I used to think that it was because that God's commandments must have said, oh, to clean out a temple, light oil for eight days. But that's actually not what it said. It said that there's an eternal flame that's to be put into the temple. And that eternal flame should be lit always. So once it's lit, it can't go back out. So they took a risk. And they said this one day, we have enough for one day, we're going to take that risk. It's going to take us eight days to make the next set of oil, but this can't go out. And they took the risk and they said, better to honor you to let it be one day than to not. So again, it's all about honor. It was honoring God's command, honoring what he keeps, how he set it up, honoring his ways. And so he, they said, okay, we'll light it. And then if it goes out, it goes out, but we'll do what we can do. And God said, you did the first step and now I'll do the rest. And he kept it going those eight days, but it's not like then the flame went out. And like here in eight days, we'll stop lighting the candles, but they had an eternal flame within their temple that kept going. And so that gave them enough time to then make that oil so they could keep that temple and that flame going. So I think as we're talking about us being the light, that there's something really powerful to that, about that internal flame within us. Um, and um, as, as he was talking about Jesus celebrating and those verses, we had those exact verses down because it doesn't talk about it much. Like, that's it. If you want the verses about Hanukkah that are in our Bible, that's it. Um, so it's not something that we have to go, oh, this is commanded. This is something that we have to do. And even when we do the prayers in a moment, the Jewish prayer says, um, who commands us to kindle. So it says that Adonai commands us to kindle the Hanukkah lights. That's their traditional prayer. We change it in our house to say who allows us to kindle because we feel like it was, it's an allowance thing that it's it's not we don't have to um, we choose to we don't have to honor the light of God we don't have to honor his miracle of the of old we don't have to honor any of his miracles but um he allows it and as we do it and as we kindle those lights he allows it and as we do it I think there's just such glory to God that's given that he says thank you for remembering so most of the Jewish holidays are people tried to kill us and God saved us people tried to kill us and God saved us people tried to kill us and God saved us. So once again, people tried to kill them. Um, and one of the things, that, the way they did that is when they took over, when he was, when Larry was talking about, you know, the, these people coming over, um, Antiochus and Alexander the Great, and these, when this Greek, when these Greek presents came in, they were assimilate. That was their, that was their one rule. You will do what we say to do. You will not honor your own faith. You will do it like we say do it. And so one of the things we choose to do in our house is consider in our own temple, in our own life, how have we assimilated? What have we done? What have we done, you know, biblically? What have we done 
culturally, but what are some of the ways we have chosen to follow the ways of the world or the ways of tradition or the ways of our own flesh or our own heart versus the ways of God? And so that's one of the ways that we honor God in our house through Hanukkah is to say, okay, I am the temple. And what have I allowed in? And what is trying to defile me? And how can I set myself apart? And how can this miracle, this flame, this eternal flame that's supposed to be inside of me and that it is inside of me? And I love that we're studying that he is light and we are light because I think it's perfect for the festival of lights, that it's celebrating this piece of history. It's celebrating the miracles, but it's also celebrating the light and we are light and he is light and he is in us as light, as the eternal flame within our temple. And I think there's something really holy about that and really special. So um, did I miss anything major? Okay, so those were kind of the notes-ish about what we're going to, what I wanted to just add to the conversation. And the other thing we do in our house is as we look at the lights, we always um, think about something because we don't, we want it to be historical, but we also want it to be very personal. And so as we're lighting the candles tonight, if you just want to look into that flames and look into the light and just talk to God about that, to to say, God, you know, I, I just to welcome him in again, to remember, to rededicate, to dedicate our own temples to the holy God, to Adonai, who has come as the eternal flame inside of us and who has always been this eternal flame inside of us and and allow that to kindle and burn even brighter. So um, if I could have a female adult who would volunteer for me. Perfect. Great. We decided to keep it a little more traditional because um, and Ronnie did it on Tuesday, and great job, Ronnie, um, on Tuesday. But typically it's a female that comes in lights. And so what's going to happen is... Um, I'll do the prayers so that you can listen to the prayers. I'll speak part of the Hebrew. You can speak it back. And then I'll speak part of the English. You can speak it back. And that way you can um, pr- and practice with my terrible, horrible Hebrew. You can practice that wonderful accent that I don't have. Um, so then um, if you'll take the middle one, that's called the Shemash. And that actually represents, and me- Messianic Jewish people would say that represents Jesus, the servant who came. Um, but it's the one that's it's the helper candle. The, the word means helper. And if you'll start in light, and, and every day you add a candle say day one. So now we're on day six. So if you'll start at this end and go all the way to the end, that would be perfect. Um, And so I'll do the prayers first. We'll repeat. And then if you want to light those, we'll think about God. And then I'll turn it back over to Larry to do communion. Just so that the the folks on Zoom can feedback with that little tiny bit of latest here, just give it a little longer. longer. Okay, perfect. Awesome. I can do that. Okay. And if everybody will just stand up with us and just honor Adonai. Baruch Ata Adonai. Baruch Ata Adonai. Eloheinu Melech Haolam. Eloheinu Melech Haolam. Asher Kitshanu. Asher Kitshanu. Yeshua. Yeshua. Vitzivanu. Vitzivanu. Lehadlik. Lehadlik. Nershel. Hanukkah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God. Blessed are you, Adonai. Ruler of the universe. Ruler of the universe. Who makes us holy through Yeshua. Who makes us holy through Yeshua. And allows us to kindle the lights of Hanukkah. And allows us to kindle the lights of Hanukkah. And there's a second prayer. Baruch Atadonai. Baruch Atadonai. Eloheinu Melech Olam. Eloheinu Melech Olam. She'anisim. She'anisim. La'avitenu. Be'amin, Be'amin. Ha'hem, Ha'hem. Bazman Hazay, 
Blessed are you, Adonai our God. Blessed are you, Adonai our God. Ruler of the universe. Ruler of the universe. Who performed miracles for our ancestors. Who performed miracles for our ancestors. In days of old at this season. In days of old at this season. And there's a third prayer that's usually only read the first night, but we're going to read it because it's one of my favorite prayers. Baruch atah Adonai. Baruch Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam. Shehekianu, Vikiamanu, Vihigianu, Lazman Haze. Blessed are you, Adonai our God. Blessed are you, Ruler of the universe. For giving us life. For sustaining us. And for allowing us to reach this joyous season. Amen. Thank you. So, you know, just one little reflection. Um, that's the second time in, in this week that I've heard those prayers because we, we prayed them on Tuesday. And I think it's, um, I think it's fascinating that the focal point of those prayers is Adonai. That's really cool. Um, you know, when, when the apostles were defending who Jesus was, one of the, the things that they used, they reached back into the, into the Hebrew Bible and they said, why did he say, the Lord said to my Lord, Adonai, is that in Hebrew? And uh, I just think it's fascinating. So one of the things I've learned, you guys have helped me learn, is that, uh, and, and, and Yana and Darla have helped me learn it too, is that it's not a matter of abandoning or setting aside our Christianity and the particulars of our faith to embrace this. Uh, and I love, I love the way, and Darla was the one that really, or Yana was the one that really gave me some ground to stand on. She says, you got great privileges as Gentiles. Why are you trying to be a Jew? You know, I, we don't have to fake being a Jew. We honor. We honor the, the, the history that God has given us. And the fruit of that history, um, like one of the, one of my favorite theologians is a guy named T.F. Torrance, and he defined Israel as the womb of the incarnation. I think that's cool because it's a, it's a living, organic reality. Jesus came to make the one new man, and God's going to, I think, he's going to have that made. And I think you're right. I think these are little examples of how it can be. So anyway... Um, what I'd like us to do, and, and so I, I, I shared that in particular because I want us to take communion, and I don't, want, I don't want you to feel hesitant, like, wow, taking communion at a Hanukkah celebration or having Hanukkah at a communion celebration, I think it works okay. I think that, that the new covenant and the old covenants and the progress and the growth and the fulfillment and the culmination in in the the body and the blood of Jesus is, is appropriate. So, um, anyway, what we're going to do, and I think we're ready to go back there on food, right, Rick? I'm kind of convicted that we don't take communion frequently enough here on Fridays. So, Lord, I'm grateful. I'm grateful tonight for all that you have shared. I'm grateful for the roots that flow back into history for us. Jesus, I'm grateful that you honored
and approach the temple on that feast of dedication. And Lord, we're not gonna we're not gonna resist you. We're gonna receive you tonight. So Lord, I, I lift your body, this bread representing your body, sacrificed for us. Thank you. As we contemplate all that this represents, Lord, healing. We remember Tracy and we remember Dan. We remember Dave and the others who need a touch. Some need an intervention, an invasion of wholeness and healing. As we partake in this, we release into our own lives wholeness and healing, and we release healing to our brothers and sisters. Lord, as this represents your blood, we thank you for it. We thank you that you freely submitted and shed. We bless you. And like your body, we receive the cleansing and the enlivening that it brings. And we do so in the light of this celebration. As Monique was using the helper candle to prime the wicks and move them around, I just saw a vision of how you've come to us to help us know and see the Father. How you've come to us to help us realize the created destiny that we bear to help us realize that every one of us from the youngest to the oldest in this room, you have designed us to bear the light of your presence. And when we think about the miracle that led to this ceremony, the oil, the oil that kept burning, I'm reminded of the fullness of your spirit and the life and light that it brings into our lives. And so as we come up and as we partake of, and take of your body and your blood, I pray that we do so in the light of you, Jesus, and that we see ourselves in these candles representing these days, and that we have hope for these two. And it's a pretty sure hope because it's just going to tomorrow and Sunday and they'll be lit. But what do they represent, Lord, that we long for? The revelation, the light. You did say you are the light of the world. You also said that we are the light of the world. Lord, that's as deep a mystery as any in the scripture. But we say yes, we receive it. And we do so remembering your death, your resurrection. And that you now are with the Father and that we are in you and with you. And we bless you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So something that Holly did on Tuesday is, is she, she shared that when they uh, go through each of the, the nights of the celebration, that they spend some time just looking into the light. And... Um, kind of meditating on it, just letting it say whatever the Lord would say, letting it search whatever the Lord would search. And so uh, I encourage you to do that for just a minute or two.
And uh, I would I would say listen for what the Lord says, because I'll be surprised if He doesn't speak to you. And then we'll take together in just a moment.